Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest this week is Alexander Mikabeltise. I'm sorry if I said this wrong. He has written a book called The Napoleonic Wars. And we are going to discuss this week in part three out of three on Napoleon because of the movie released last week. And we are going to discuss the final part, the 100 days of Napoleon in power. And we're going to end with Waterloo and St. Helena and his exile to Elba. But of course, before we go into the 100 days and his exile, as first exile and now the 100 days, I want to talk about the movie itself, which is kind of the elephant of the room for this episode. So let's talk about, first I want to know what did they get right, and of course there's, boy oh boy, there's a lot of wrong things with it as well. I mean, like, capital wrong, A, wrong, a in wrong. So let's begin with what, but on positive notes rather, what did your movie get right at first? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Erlen, for uh, inviting me to the podcast. Uh, it, it's really a, a, an honor and privilege to be here. Um, as for your question, I think... <laughs> I should add as well before we begin, I'm sorry, but I should add that to might be a spoiler for those who haven't seen the movie, if you can call the social thing. Yeah. But yes. uh, they're real best spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie, you might want to skip this part. So just a fair uh, warning yes, I, there. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think... And, and and it's a it's a hard thing to kind of say, but uh, the movie is is really subpar. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of complaints, a lot of grievances that I have about it. Uh, and even if we allow for artistic license, right? We we you know mm. the one thing big the big question we should consider is well, you know uh, what is the artistic license? What is the permissible, acceptable? Um, uh, freedom that artists, writers, directors have in creating their work, mm-hmm. and I'm all for them um, for them to be free to imagine widely, to roam freely, to experiment. But there has to, there is a fine line between historical fictionalization and and a farcical mm-hmm. storytelling, and I think this movie is more farce. Than anything else. So it's, if, it's I, a, if I may add, I think it's a good movie as a movie, but historically, no. No, no. I, I actually, setting aside historical accuracies, I don't think it's a good movie. I don't mm, think really? the script works. So, I, I, I'm, you know, I love, for example, new clothes for uh, uh, Damper's new clothes, which came out what twenty years ago. Mm. Imagining Napoleon escape and coming back and becoming the the most successful baker in Paris. I mean, it's as ridiculous uh, uh, in terms of historical accuracy as you can imagine. But it was a fun movie. I don't think this is a fun movie. <laughs> I don't think the script mm-hmm. works, at least for me. Uh, and and historical inaccuracies is, is, is a separate issue. 
So, so but again, again, go go see it for yourself and uh, send me a tweet. Uh, tell me if I if I'm wrong. <laughs> so let's begin with correct some few of the wrongs of the movie. What should have should it should have done differently and how? But I think is, yeah, you know. Well, I think one of the issues is that trying to contain or, 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 or cram really uh, two decades of Napoleon's life probably one of the most turbulent human lives we, we have witnessed into just two and a half hours. It's, it's just mm. pointless. You will not be able to deal with, with the history of it as as well, or, or to convey the drama of it as well as, uh, uh, as, as, you pro- as it deserves to. So I think the premise itself, trying to kind of cover everything, is not working. Um, while I like the... Uh, uh, Vanessa Kirby, who performs uh, Josephine. Um, um, I think Joaquin Phoenix occasionally shines as Napoleon, but largely misses mm. the charisma, the the I intensity. I felt he was a bit miscast. The two found a better actor yeah. for Napoleon. Yeah. yeah, and and I think I mean he's a great actor, uh, it's, mm. but maybe maybe in this movie he didn't have any direction. Or uh, of course, it's a problem when the same actor who is uh, what forty nine years old and yeah. He plays he he plays Napoleon as a 25 24 year old and and as a 51 year old and then there is no really maturing of him there is no change Napoleon at 24 mm. is perceived to be the same guy as at 51 so I think the emotional growth is not there but the biggest issue I have with the movie and the script really is that there is no attempt to offer insight into who this guy really was is mm. he a tyrant is he a visionary? Is he a warlord, ruthless, callous, or is he a romantic hero? There is no no attempt to that. There is no attempt to understand his legacy, good or bad. Instead, what we're given is is this kind of mild abstraction of Napoleon's personal life, interspersed with occasional battle scenes, and I, I just don't find it. Um, mm. After twenty years of waiting, <laughs> I just I don't think this is the movie we we, we deserve. <laughs> That's fair enough. So I want to begin with before we go into I've been to begin with Alexander's March of Paris, but before that I want to begin with I don't think we discussed this the last time, is that there was a sort of nostalgia even after the Bourbons were gone, there was sort of nostalgia and and the Napoleonic regime. There was sort of a nostalgia for for the Bourbons, and as we will see when Louis XVIII is reinstated, but there was a kind of what caused this nostalgia for the Bourbon dynasty that they kind of tried to get rid of in the first place, which was a cause for the revolution. And I find it a bit ironic, but let's talk a little bit about, about the nostalgia for the reinstating Bourbon dynasty again. Um, actually, I'll, I'll I'll be again careful. Maybe making a, a general statement like nostalgia. Um, the question mm-hmm. I think you should we should ask from who? Which groups of people are we are we mm-hmm. discussing? Um, one thing that becomes obvious early on is that the Bourbons lacked national support. That's that's yeah. clear. There are some parts of France. There are some group social classes that would love Bourbons to be back, and they certainly welcome them. But by and large, the French people are not necessarily in favor of the Bourbon restoration. What they are in favor of is end to war, and to this long uh, bloodletting that France has been uh, uh, experiencing, 
it, it wants to return to some sense of normalcy. And if it's the Bourbons who return that normalcy, so be it. So there is certain ap- apathy, certain uh, willingness to go along. And even that doesn't last long because we know that the Bourbons uh, aggravated the situation through a series of um, unpopular, even if unavoidable, but certainly unpopular decisions, right? So that includes questioning the questioning the revolutionary legacy. It, it includes imposing censorship, and it certainly uh, it, it includes dismantling the imperial war machine, which we know was necessitated by the financial crisis that France was in, and, and by the end of the war. But from an experience of, an, uh, uh, of a, you know, a, any French soldier, that certainly was perceived to be uh, them being callously discarded into streets with little pay, with little sustenance after decades of, of, of their dedicated service. So I think Bourbons, as a, you know, to go, going back to your question, I think they, they are popular in some parts, but overwhelmingly what French people really wanted was peace and stability, peace and order. Uh, return to normalcy. Hmm. So let's begin with, and maybe not begin, but let's go to the Mar- Alexander's March in Paris because he realizes this time, and that, unlike Austerlitz, that it, it won't be over unless it follow Napoleon from Moscow all the way to Paris. So let's talk about Napoleon, uh, sorry, Alexander's March in Paris. Uh, at what point, though? Uh, are we starting in January of 1814, or are we doing more... Let's say uh, from the border of Russia until Paris. Oh, that's a, that's a long story, <laughs> then, <laughs> right? Because uh, that, that march... Napole- Alexander didn't envision in, 18, in January of 1813 that he will make all the way to Paris, Um if anything, we know that the spring campaign of 1813 was a disastrous campaign for the Russians and the Prussians, that they started the war, or the new campaign to be precise, in a, in a, with a series of defeats at, at Lutzen and Bautzen. And it, se- it seemed for a while that Napoleon would be able to turn the tide of war. I mean, uh, if you read uh, Russian documents, Russian memoirs, di- diaries, or, 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 or journals, you, you'll see that they were all quite surprised by how quickly Napoleon was able to rebuild the army in the wake of the dev- devastation that Grand Armée suffered in Russia. And the fact that Napoleon is able to bring back some 300,000 men in April of 1813 and then go on and crush the Russians and Prussians in May uh, was, was, was an ominous sign. But they are lucky, really fortunate that Napoleon decides to negotiate in June, right? So right after the battles um, that were fought, um, the last battle being Bautzen on 21st of May, um, Napoleon agrees to an armistice. And that armistice, of course, lasts from June through August, from June 4 to August 13. And during this time, yes, there are attempts to negotiate, but I don't think either side, whether the Russians or the uh, Austrians or the French really meaningfully approached this. Um, we know that Napoleon uh, thought that the Allied demands were too heavy, uh, and, and and indeed, uh, when Austrians uh, came to Prague and, and, and negotiated, they demanded French withdrawal from Italy, from Germany, from Low Countries. So essentially, France would have forsaken 
empire in Central and Eastern Europe and would have effectively returned to the Western side of Europe. And that was too much uh, as far as Napoleon was concerned because he's just won battles and it seemed that the campaign was going well. Um, and, and there is a question whether, again, Russians were keenly interested in making any deal with Napoleon. Uh, they are, the the armistice collapses on August 13. And of course, the biggest, I think the biggest question we, we and the listeners should kind of uh, wonder about is whether Napoleon did enough to uh, uh, prevent the Austrian entry into the war. Because I think that's the game changer. The fact that the Austrian Empire, after being allied to Napoleon, Napoleon is after all married to Austrian princes, after sending tens of thousands of troops into Russia in 1812, and now in, in the spring of 1813, after remaining largely neutral, of course, Austria makes a decision to enter the war on the side of the Allies, and that is a game changer. Because Napoleon could have dealt with Russians and Prussians, but with the arrival of over a quarter million Austrian troops and this massive resources that Austria committed, he's facing overwhelming um, odds against him. And so when the when the, uh, the war began and uh, resumed in August of 1813, Napoleon is facing strategically very different situation. So he might operationally, on the operational level, he might be able to deal with isolated threats. But on the strategic level, he's facing a coalition force unlike any that he faced before. That's one of the things that uh, we often forget, that in all of the previous coalitions, Napoleon, yes, he faced on paper these massive coalitions that includes half a dozen different nations. But when we look closely, whether at Austerlitz or at Jena or at Jaila or Friedland, he only faces one little part of that coalition. In 1813, he faces these coalition partners, the key partners all together with their troops together with a with an effective plan, the Trashenberg plan, already in place, which is why the French continue to lose. So they lose at Katzbach on August 26, at Kulm on August 29, at Denewitz on September 6, and of course, most famously at Leipzig in October. Yeah in the great battle of the nations where napoleon finally takes charge of the uh, of the of the army um it, trying to kind of bring the allies to him but in a three day battle he's defeated that's when and if, right? if, I, if i may add as well yeah. if you are in leipzig by chance it's absolutely worth visiting the napoleon monument because it's a history it's an incredible monument and it's also its own history in itself so you absolutely should go visit if you have the chance the Napoleon monument in Leipzig. Absolutely. Um, and, and as you pointed out, it, it has actually a very interesting history. Uh, we have to bear in mind that it is not a con contemporary monument. Mm. That is, it's not a monument that was built after the battle or in the years. It took a hundred years to build. That's right. It's, it's, it was built on the centennial of the battle already with the in a very different environment right it's it's built by the united german state on the eve of world war 1 so it it has a not necessarily it has a commemorative aspect to it but it also has a very important political aspect to it as as the un underscoring kind of this wilhelmine uh german right imperial might and and the um the unity um, of the of the nations, right? Although especially yeah. German uh, Germans in this battle. So, but you're right. It, it's a it's a really interesting monument. 
And I want ah. to ask, just hypothetically as well, let us say Napoleon somehow won the Napoleonic War in 1812-13. How long would it be able, because it's, if you look at the map, his empire is quite vast and gigantic, so how long would it be able to contain in the times of the beginning of 1812? How long would it be able to hold on to the empire? Let us say here, is victorious somehow, would he be able to hold it for long, even if he won the battles? Let me slightly revise maybe that question and I'll uh, yeah. say, what if Napoleon in 1812 decided to compromise with Alexander mm. and mm. struck a, 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 some kind of a, a arrangement with him? And, and there were plenty of opportunities to do that. So he, he, both in terms of economy, you know, collaboration within revised continental system or on political fronts, compromising on some of the uh, demands that the uh, Russians had. So let's say that was achieved. Then, and Napoleon doesn't have to go to Russia. He could have easily taken half of that massive force he had, gone to Spain and Portugal and dealt with the British, which would have meant that the empire would have endured for many, many more years to come. Mm. The empire implodes not because there are revolutions within, it doesn't implode because there is a resistance within. It implodes because Napoleon loses its biggest and largest force in Russia and, and creates an opening for the uh, for his former allies, but in reality rivals, to challenge his power. Without that defeat, he would have been in, in position to control the empire for years to come. Mm. And so let's talk about Alexander's march again on, on Paris and money enters Paris. And there is a, a little, I would say, a little amusing when World War II anecdote, when Churchill congratulates Stalin on the his invasion into Berlin and he says, congratulations, you made it all the way to Berlin. But then Stalin goes and say, well, Alexander made it to Paris. Um, yes, he did make it to Paris, but again, that was not the thought even he had uh, or crossed his mind uh, as late as December of 1813. It, have, if you look at the documents with the internal correspondence of the key leaders or the generals or even down to the officer level, they were all concerned about invading France. The memories of the French resistance in 1792-93 were still actually fresh. Mm. And the Allies were concerned about what they will encounter in France. They were certainly disinclined, many of them were disinclined, to pay the high cost in men, in resources, in material that would require invading. Right? Um, but ultimately, right, and we know that they actually tried to negotiate with Napoleon, right? So they make the, the famous Frankfurt proposals, to Napoleon, and once again, Napoleon's refusal to accept these proposals, uh, which were offered in November 1813, so right after Leipzig, and uh, Napoleon's refusal uh, meant that the Allies um, have decided that the invasion needs to pro- progress. And so uh, the Ally, uh, this Russo-Prussian-Austrian force, is now approaches the banks of, or the, the borders of France and on the New Year's uh, on the New Year's Day of 1814, uh, the invasion commences. Uh, it, it doesn't progress uh, as easily as and 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 they knew that, that and uh, but they it certainly didn't progress as easily as they uh, hoped it would. Um, Napoleon once again, he's in, in that famous statement that he says that he has to put his 
1796 boots on, right? He's Italian boots on. Uh, Napoleon, even though he has a small army, but he um, he he's a brilliant commander. You know, you, we can say a lot of things about Napoleon, about about his legacy, about the way he governed, the way he abused his power. But one thing that I think we can agree upon is that he is a brilliant commander, especially when he's facing operational situations like uh, the one he's faced in 1814, where he consistently outmaneuvers the allies. Allies are much more methodical, slower, more concerned. Uh, And so it gives Napoleon an opportunity to um, operate in between the invading forces, and he successfully uh, does so to the degree that uh, in February of 1814, um, he scores right the famous uh, week-long series of battles uh, like at Champaubert, Montmirail, uh, and so on, which in one point actually con- uh, uh, concerned the Allies that it might be right that they would have to fall back. Right? I mean, it's stunning. This summer, for example, I took my children and got in the car and we went and visited um, the, the, all the sides of this remarkable uh, week-long uh, French victories. So we went to Champaubert, Montmirail, Chateau Thierry, Beauchamp, and then turned and went to Mormon, Monterey, and Maria. It's just stunning to see the speed with which these troops were able to switch from one direction to another. Mm. Uh, um, but once again, here's the problem, right? Napoleon faces, and this is a problem he's faced for the past several years, and that is his operational brilliance, right? His tactical prowess does not translate into strategic victory. So what he needs, this is not the war that he could have won simply by winning a battle. He won enough of them in Egypt. He needed a political solution to the battle, uh, to the war. And every time the Allies offered him this opportunity to talk, even after this, right, after these victories, they offer him to negotiate a Chatillon, Napoleon refuses to accept um, the proposals, right? And, and, and so that um, meant that the war will continue. And no matter what Napoleon does, he is unable to splinter the coalition. So his victories are important. They are important tactically, operational, but politically, strategically, they are not important. Especially because um, we know that the British foreign minister, uh, Castlery, very brilliant, very capable guy, Castlery arrives at the Allied headquarters and through his efforts, and this is where I see his tremendous legacy, he's able to negotiate the Treaty of Chamon. That's the, the one that was signed on March 1st. And once Treaty of Chamon is signed, as far as I'm concerned, and you're welcome to disagree, once Treaty of Chamon is signed, that's it. Napoleon is done. There is nothing he could really do to stay in power because Chamon is clearly designed to form a a waterproof alliance of the great powers for 20 years, whose goal it is to remove Napoleon from power. Britain provides all the money, Russia and Austria, Prussia provide the necessary manpower, and they are determined. This is where the political will is unshaken. They're determined to prevail. So no matter what Napoleon would have done after Chamon, he could have raised another 100,000 men, he could have won another five, six, ten battles. The the will of the alliance is there, and it's unshaken. And of course, they understand that in politics, symbols matter, right? And that's why when 
you know, allies are confronting uh, this Napoleon, resurgent Napoleon, they choose, yes, to, to fight him. They still fight at Cryon. They still fight at Laon. Uh, but the goal is to get to Paris. And, and Paris for the Allies is that very symbol of Napoleon's power that you take it and it, in terms of power, in, in terms of appearance, in terms of the theatrics of power, that's an enormous blow. So Napoleon can win that decisive battle at Reims, for example, where entire Fr- Russian corps is wiped out. But it means... N- in, in a large scheme of things, it means nothing because he opens the pathway to Paris. And as we know, the Allies reach Paris uh, by noon on March 30th. We have a battle fought, uh, but that battle is essentially uh, um, predecided considering the overwhelming numerical superiority that the Russians, Austrians, and Prussians have. And so on March 13, 31st of 1814, Paris surrenders. Napoleon still wants to fight, but his marshals do not. Right? And for them, the fall of Paris is the very symbol that they were waiting. That this is it. The empire has lost. They are tired of defending what many of them, for years, you know, since 1812, many of them believe was increasingly a lost cause. And so we see Ney, Oudinot, Lefebvre, Monsey, the, the great figures of the empire, getting into the room and telling Napoleon, you got to go. So let's talk about this abdication and why history was chosen as Elba, as an exile, the first one time around. Um, I think in many respects, Napoleon's first exile is, is the result of the Russian influence. Um, I mean, if you, if you had listened to Russians, right, they wanted Napoleon mm-hmm. imprisoned or, or worse. But Alexander, uh, uh, Emperor of Russia, certainly felt uh, a grudging, but but a uh, degree of respect for Napoleon, and he uh, he was uh, the the driving force be- between behind the Treaty of Fontainebleau that is negotiated on April 11, and it was agreed that Napoleon cannot stay anywhere in France, and if not in France, where else can he go? What, what country would be insane enough to get him, to welcome him? Britain, Russia, <laughs> Prussia, mm-hmm. German states, Italy. Right? There is no place really in Europe where he can simply go and retire. Unless, that is, we find a small place, a corner that no one really gives a shit, right, cares about. Mm-hmm. And there he can just be. And so island of Elba was perceived to be close enough to keep an eye on but far enough where Napoleon uh, can cause any disturbance to, let's say, any, any given government. And so he's recognized as a sovereign of the island of Elba. He's given an annual income of 2 million francs. He's, uh, he has all the trappings of sovereignty. He has his own flag. He has his own ships. He has his own army, right? They're small, all everything small. But he will, he would have been a sovereign ruler of Elba for years to come, and considering that in 1814 he's uh, 45 years old, we could have easily expected him to live another 20, 30 years and, uh, on, on this lovely Mediterranean mm. island. Now, I want to ask, because according to 
about Talirao and Fuche as well, because we spoke a little bit about them. And Talirao, of course, is famously the train opponent. But as Adam, so, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to say his name right, somewhere history in his biography of Napoleon argues that Talirao tried to reason with Napoleon and he has didn't wouldn't listen to him because he had, didn't really have respect for Talirao. But how did they, those two, manage to get themselves out of the situation? What happened to them? after the Napoleonic regime fell? Well, I belong to the number of historians who are necessarily who are not necessarily critical of Talleyrand. So again, I don't subscribe to this notion mm. that Talleyrand owed some kind of oath of fealty to Napoleon and that his actions mm. betray him. No, mm. first of all, Talleyrand was out of job right, for quite some time. Second of all, he correctly, and this is, I think we need to state that, that he correctly understood that Napoleon needs to be contained. And he understood that long before anyone else around Napoleon understood that. So those marshals who are forcing Napoleon to abdicate in April of 1814, well, they came to that realization late when Talleyrand realizes that as early as 1807, 1808. What he understood was that Napoleon would be Right was was on a path of to 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 a, a position of t- too much power, mm-hmm. and that he had to be constrained. And yes, you can question whether uh, Talleyrand's claim that he was acting on behalf of France and rather Napoleon, right, that he was acting out of interest of France, was genuine or not. But I think if Napoleon had listened to Talleyrand. I think he would have certainly fared better and France would have done better because ultimately right, mm. Napoleon is a loser. He lost the empire. He lost his family. He ends as a miserable man on, on, on a small island in the middle of nowhere. Talleyrand, if he had listened to Talleyrand in 1807, 1808, 1809, I think things would have turned out differently because Talleyrand cost, consistently urged moderation. So that's the one, one issue. The second issue is what you were saying about uh, kind of Talleyrand's position, right? Well, Talleyrand, being a diplomat that he was, cultivated relationships with uh, Russians, with Austrians. Uh, so there is no surprise that um, when Napoleon was uh, when Napoleon was, you know, abdicated when Napoleon was um, no, actually, well before Napoleon's abdication, when Paris fell. That Talleyrand were, uh, emerged as the leader of the uh, of the Senate, and it, it is because of his position as as an experienced, capable man who served the empire for quite some time that he is actually chosen in April of eighteen fourteen as the president of the Senate. And on the second April, as we all know, Talleyrand uh, moves forward with the deposition of Napoleon, which will later on be confirmed by his abdication and then the Treaty of Fontainebleau. So, yes, Talleyrand plays an important role in this. But look from his point of view, right? Mm. From his point of view, what what would have been a better choice for France to rally around Napoleon and sacrifice thousands more men at a time when clearly the odds of winning the war were against it, or cutting costs, cutting uh, losses, and forcing this man, whom you, as far as Talleyrand, whom you have been blamed for all these problems and, uh, 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 you know, for the past few years, cut the losses and deposing him. So I think he acts very pragmatically, and that's, again, a typical of, of Talleyrand. 
in a pragmatic fashion uh, in order to move forward with with um, with the war. Mm. So let's talk about this exile in Elba because it does get a certain amount which eventually runs out and the, the, I believe the government refuses to give him more if, if I understand this correctly. But let's talk about because it, again it generally tried to govern and it seems that it started to do quite well in governing Elba the little time he is there. Oh yes, I mean um, the stay on Elba is actually quite charming, and, and again, um, I I hope some of you listeners, or maybe you, will visit Elba, and you will be able mm. to see the, uh, the the beautiful island, and you might actually uh, stay at, at the um, palace. Or, or it's mm. a grandiose name for a small chateau, but nonetheless, it's a it's, it's a lovely place, and Napoleon did introduce kind of strong. Um, um, Kind of structural reforms in 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 on on the island. He he wanted to improve um, its agriculture. And he overhauled island's educational and legal systems. He began developing iron's mine in the, on the mines on the island. So I think he was here on the island and acting as a typical enlightened kind of ruler, right? So in in in, in the mold of Frederick of Prussia or Joseph. Uh, of of Austria, so in in that sense, if he had stayed on the island longer, and as I said, there was no reason why he could not have lived for another ten, fifteen years. Mm. Of course, you know, you know, the cancer uh, that ultimately mm. claims his life. Who knows what the role climate played, right? The San Helena climate certainly was not helpful. But in any case, he could have uh, turned this island into a prosperous, nice place. Except, uh, I, I, yeah, I can't. I, I just sorry if I interrupt you, but according yeah, no. to again, I mentioned last time there is a Swedish historian who wrote a biography of of Napoleon called Hermann Lindqvist. I don't know if you're aware of him, but he mentioned that eventually this, the French state kind of refused to give him more of the sum that he was promised in this exile in Elba, which is one of the reasons why I believe he chose to return as well, and because. The, the reforms he wanted to do, it was not enough funding for the for the reforms that he wanted to do as well. <laughs> if I'm no, not mistaken, that is true. No, that is true. That uh, by 1815, the Bourbon government was unwilling to pay him the stipend which was negotiated by the Allies in the Treaty of Fontainebleau. That's true. But again, this is one of those issues that I I I. Sh- I wouldn't say grapple with, I don't know, struggle with, but certainly uh, it, it, it's a it's a it's Napoleon's decision to return in in eighteen fifteen is dramatic. It's it's tinged with a lot of romanticism, but part of me cannot but wonder whether the whether he would have he would have served France better by staying on Elba. Mm. Yes. The Bourbons are not giving him two million francs. Yes, he would have lived little well off, little less well off, right? But mm. his decision to return plunges this nation into war, results in in death, in occupation, in a massive war indemnity. And and true that he doesn't know that this all of this will happen, but he should have anticipated what his decisions will produce, and especially, and this is where. I find it quite quite interesting. He decides to leave Fran- uh, Elba in February, right? He escapes in late mm-hmm. February. 
That's the same time when all of these great powers, his enemies, are literally sitting in the same room planning right, the future of Europe. So imagine what an opportunity or how easy it is for the Allies to coordinate their actions in mm. responding to Napoleon. They are not separated by distances. They are not separated by thousands of miles and time and space. They are in the same place, essentially in the same room at the Congress of Vienna. So that's where if he wanted to, to leave, he should have done it after the Congress of Vienna was over, after Alexander returned back home, after the King of Wilhelm went Berlin. And this would have co- created a, a logistical issue for the coalition to coordinate. As it was, he leaves on, in late February, lands in France on, on March 1st. The Allies hear about it days later. Metternich famously walks down the hallway, meets with the Alexander. They then convene the meeting of the great powers, craft the response, and the coalition is formed right away. And once that is done, Erland, I don't see again how Napoleon could have won. Yes, he might have prevailed at Waterloo or Belle Alliance, if you want to use the French version, how it would have been known had Napoleon won. He could have probably won another couple of battles. I mean, I mean, he did beat Prussians at Ligny, mm. and the French under Grouchy did well at Wagram. But ultimately, I don't see, I don't see how Napoleon could have won in eighteen fifteen. Mm. Just like so as thought, I said, after Chamon, he there is no chance he could win. So let's talk about his march again to back to Paris and of course what we are talking about here the hundred days as they are now now of him back in power because this would be a different Napoleon a bit more older and maybe not I don't like to mention maybe not mature but a bit more tired and and I wanted as well mention that his wife former wife maybe Marie Louise never comes back to him after he she stays in Vienna and she stays back with her family she never returns to Napoleon with when he comes back to Paris as well. So let's talk about the change of the man Napoleon when he comes back and his march on and the hundred days, how the different the different man before the exile. Um before we do, I, I do want to point out yeah. that you know the his wife not returning. Um again, that's one of those issues um that we need to kind of set aside maybe our feelings and kind of look at it more uh, rationally. Absolutely. Marie-Louise was born in in December of 1791, which means that in 1815, right, she would have just turned, what, uh, 24. Mm. She's married Napoleon in 1810, so back then she was 19. She doesn't know. Napoleon, remember, Napoleon is my age, 40s, in in his Mm. 40s. She never really knew him, right? It's an arranged marriage. There is no love to to speak of. So I think from a Marie-Louise point of view, her decision not to return in 1815 is partially explained by the fact that she never was really close to him. And of course, we know that uh, in in, in 1814, when Napoleon was overthrown, Marie-Louise went... Uh, back, right? She went back to Austria. She spent some time in Vienna. Then her father, Emperor Francis of Austria, arranges for her to go to a wonderful resort town of Aix-la-Bonne. And there, he effectively, he, her father arranges for 
one of his officers, uh, Adam von Neiber, to effectively seduce her, right, and and kind of cultivate mm-hmm. a relationship with her. So by the time Napoleon escapes, so A, Marie Louise can't simply get in a carriage and leave mm-hmm. of her own. She's surrounded by her father's forces, troops, including her own lover who is there to keep an eye on her. So I don't think it's her choice as such. Mm-hmm. But even even if she had a choice, I don't think she would have gone back. So let's set that aside. Yeah. Um, now Napoleon's return from uh, from Elba, and this is where you know, having talked that he should not have returned, I'm mm. glad Bartholomew is <laughs> glad that he returned because what a dramatic, what a dramatic moment this 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 is. I mean, this is the flight of the eagle, and I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine any other historical figure, really, certainly not in the 19th century, who could have pulled off what Napoleon did in those 20 days. I mean, in many respects, Napoleon as a romantic hero, Napoleon as the figure of the legend, is reinforced right here by the fact that he can land on March 1st, rally those thousand men or so, and lead them, carefully avoiding any villages, any towns that were unpopular or where he was unpopular. And he knows that in advance. He sends his uh, officers well ahead of his advance to check what the mood is. Right, The last thing he needs is the angry confrontations or people assaulting him. So he carefully chooses that path. And to the present day, again, you can go in, in, in France and, and take the famous route, Napoleon, from Antibes all the way to Paris, and you'll see how it goes through the mountains and small, kind of obscure valleys, but not through the highly populated areas. There is a documentary where I think there are some reenactors, and I don't know if you've seen it, but they do follow the Napoleonic route. Yeah, it's really yeah. interesting to see. It's fun, kind of fun, a fun documentary to watch, but there are these reenactors, so they're going to reenact what to do. They do follow that route, and you see some Absolutely. of the routes that they did yeah. today. Absolutely. And actually, it's very well marked. So even if you necessarily are not reenactor, but you want to do it, you can do it with it in a car. It's well marked and you can make stops at places like La Frey, where there is this famous scene on March 5th when yeah. uh, uh, the royal troops are um, sent to intercept Napoleon and they blocked his passage. And I mean, that moment gives me goosebumps, especially just thinking mm. about it. But of course, you can also watch the opening scene of Sergei Bondarchuk's wonderful Waterloo movie, right? That scene where he marches forward and gives that speech to the Fifth Regiment, and right, and 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 his persona, his charisma, Ooh. that the scene of him standing there with his classical hat, coat, right, swaying those soldiers and making them in a split second to make a decision to betray one government and to support another, all that is incredible. It is equally incredible that Napoleon continues to advance for the next two two more weeks, and he's able to take Grenoble without a fight, pass it through Orleans and all the cities in between without resistance to speak of. Again, what other historical figure you know who would have been overthrown, exiled, come back with such triumph? Maybe and just that's where the secret of Napoleon close, is. But yeah. So mm-hmm. let's talk about his entry, re-entry into Paris. But just a second, I'm gonna have to pause the recording a little bit. 
So in the movie, and I do believe this was a real thing. I don't think, think you mentioned briefly, but let's talk. He does meet a bunch of soldiers and a general that opposes him that's sent by Louis eighteen, I think, to you know stop him from entering Paris when when he arrives. But he speaks to them and uh, then they begin to say hail Napoleon, and, and we see this in the movie again. But did this? How did this happen? Is this true that this did happen when he meet the soldiers on his way to Paris? And then it suddenly begin to join his side. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, we know that it happened, and I think that's again, as I was saying, that's one of one of the things that is missing in the movie. If and I'm talking about really Scott's movie, after sitting through two and a half hours, you don't really get what's the charisma that this guy has. What's that charm? What's that? What mm. does he stand for? That will make these soldiers make a split second decision to betray the Bourbon government, knowing well what the punishment will be for that, for the desertion, for the treason, really. And yet, mm-hmm. as they're standing there, right, they, they have to make a decision. One of them just needs to pull a trigger. That's all. He doesn't even have to hit him. If a single shot would have let others, kind of this crowd mentality, would have others let, let others fire as well, Napoleon would have been dead. They would have could have gone back home that same night. As it was, right, in that split second, they chose that this guy right, is more important to them for, for complex reasons than the government in Paris, than the Bourbons, than Louis XVIII. And I think that is what is missing in this movie. It's missing that heart. Um, but Lafrague did take place just as when he left, when he got to Grenoble. We know that Napoleon, that the locals brought, kind of broke down the doors, the gates of, Gren- of the city and brought it to him. Uh, we know that his advance beyond Grenoble was equally triumphant, I would say, in that after 19 days marching on March 20th, Napoleon enters Paris, where he was practically mobbed, carried by these ecstatic crowds to the Tuileries Palace, to the very place that Louis XVIII, the Bourbon king, vacated only a few hours before. So in in less than twenty in less than three weeks, Napoleon had reclaimed his empire without a shot. All that was left for him was to keep it. And again, that's really incredible that he managed managed to do such a such a thing. Not even shot fired. It's uh... It's unbelievable, unspo- and and uh, it's unheard of. It is, it is, uh, and I think it underscores both the Napoleonic legend, the myth, his own ability to understand the public mood, uh, his uh, ability to f- figure out what is the best way to navigate these these conflicting uh, conflicting. S- feelings that the French people had for him. We know that in some villages that he passed, people confronted him and told him, why did you come? You will bring disaster to us, right? He is not, again, that is one of the things I need to emphasize. He is not universally welcomed in France. There are well, like Bourbons. There are some people who want him back, and there are quite a few people who understand that his return will mean a war, will mean yet another in- uh, period of of political, economic, social uh, misery, uh, and and uh, Napoleon once he comes to power, he quickly 
tries to address these issues, right? We know that he uh, forms a new government, uh, and this is a government in which he we clearly see him willing to be to let bygones be bygones. So in this new government, he have Colin Core as the minister of foreign affairs. Fouché is brought back, right? The very Fouché, Fouché that we. But he is quite an incredible character in himself, Fouché, because he is, again, he is one of those who managed to escape from it all because he's in such a position that he has all the little eyes and ears everywhere. He's the head of police and he knows how knows the dark little secrets of people that he can blackmail if he wants. And he is quite a fascinating, he deserves his own episode in the future. And he's such <laughs> an, he, he really yeah. is an interesting character because he's one of those who kind of gets got three butts from Bourbon and Napoleonic regime. Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, Fouché has not been served well by his biographers, um, especially mm. English ones. But the Frank, there is a wonderful biography of him by uh, French historian Varys Kael, um, and it is well worth your time. And I hope that there will be an equally good study done uh, of him uh, that will really and showcase... <laughs> yeah, hopefully we'll see, right? <laughs> but well, so, so, what, so, so. but yeah, the sorry. government that, Nap- that Napoleon forms, the government um, of eighteen fifteen, shows that he is willing to reach across the aisle towards his opponent and give them a chance to contribute. So Lazare Carnot, the great Republican, uh, is offered the position of Minister of Interior. Joseph Fouché, whom Napoleon knew that back in 1809-1810, Fouché was actively conspiring against him, but still he invites him back. We know, in, in, even in, even more interesting than this, Napoleon understood that the old imperial ways could not be replicated, that he could not simply govern like he did just two years earlier. Mm. And what he does is he invites his longtime critic, Benjamin Constant, which is one, who was one of the great French liberal thinkers, uh, he invites Constant to come and draw, uh, write a new constitution, which would include a two-chamber, a bicameral parliament that would share power with the emperor. So essentially what we see in 1815 is Napoleon inching towards a, a British-style constitutional monarchical model uh, that would have created a monarchy, that would have had more power than the, let's say, British king did at the time, but still would have been constrained by a representative government. Uh, Napoleon in 1815 uh, and censorship that the Bourbons imposed, uh, he belatedly, and this is one of those issues that we should be paying more attention, right? Napoleon restored slavery uh, in a, back in 1802, but now in 1815, he abolished slave trade. Uh, and uh, he repeatedly states that he doesn't have any desire to rebuild the empire he doesn't have a desire to to be the old himself but rather as he famously says he wants the happiness and consolidation of the french well, like you said this is a this is a different napoleon a more mature if you will from the pre pre pre-exile napoleon so this is a so this is a different different man we are dealing with right now exactly um and I think uh, part of it is that he learned a lesson. Part of it is that he faces a uh, a situation that requires him to be more uh, kind of willing to compromise. 
but the the big the challenge that he faces, right? The challenge is that after a decade of of his rule, after a decade of what he has done, it's hard for people to believe him. That there are many people, especially those uh, outside France, were skeptical of Napoleon. Is this? Can we really believe this man? Right. Is mm-hmm. what will happen five, ten years from now when he's able to rebuild his power? Will he allow these reforms last? Will he be really content to be peaceful? And as I mentioned, Congress of Vienna, of course, didn't believe Napoleon um, at all. Even before Napoleon has a chance to reach out to them, which he does, right? He sends out appeals for peace. Even before that, on March 7th, so just one week after Napoleon's departure from um, Elba, uh, the uh, Metternich, Austrian foreign minister, informs the monarchs of the great powers in Vienna. And then within hours, the allied uh, leaders agreed to mobilize, to, to form a seventh coalition and to mobilize their forces. So by March 25th, that is just five days after Napoleon reaches Paris, the coalition is already fully formed and France is facing war. Uh, give, no, give, no, me yeah. give me no, a sec. Yeah, I'm just going to uh-huh. post the podcast right away. Sorry about that, Lance. But we, let's, uh, before we go to the war, what happened to Talleyrand when Napoleon returned? We spoke a little bit about him earlier, but did he leave the Bourbon monarchy or did he remain in Paris? What what happened um, to him again? Yes, so Talleyrand um, was the chief negotiator at the Congress of mm-hmm. Vienna, um, and he plays a very crucial role in, in the revival of the French interests and French positions, yeah. despite the defeat in 1814. Um, he is a crucial architect of that secret treaty that was signed in January of 1815 between France, Austria, and Britain to contain uh, Russian aggrandizement. Uh, so by the time um, Napoleon returns, uh, Talleyrand already has served the co- kind of has served the Bourbon cause, and he he does he sees Napoleon's return as a mistake, right? He he does, and so that's why he doesn't rally to Napoleon's cause. Uh, and Would he rally Napo- from if he did? I, I'm not sure, frankly. Um, that's a good question. Um, considering that Napoleon employs Fouché. I don't know, maybe he would have, but I think there is a lot more animosity between Talleyrand and, and Napoleon than there was between Fouché and, and Napoleon. Um, you know, we, we have many angry scenes between Napoleon and Talleyrand, including that famous in which Napoleon calls him the uh, silk stocking full of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't have that with Fouché, right? Fouché was yeah. much more kind of reserved and, and withdrawn. Smoother. Mm-hmm. Smoother too, yeah. So Talleyrand, and, and I don't think Talleyrand, knowing kind of his character, kind of what he was about, I don't think he would have agreed to it uh, because he could not see Napoleon winning in 1815. And he was right in this. So let's talk about the war. And we mentioned this last time because, as you know, Napoleon rather new forces because he lost like hundreds of thousands on the march of Mott to Moscow. And again, he lost the people that lost, we mentioned this in the last episode with Zach White, these were experienced soldiers from several of Napoleon's battles. And the new ones, 
Tanakonen did rally, they were inexperienced and had maybe never seen a battle before. So even though we managed to get quite a huge number, we have to again, and I say this, say it's worth repeating that these were not experienced soldiers that we see the old Grand Army free Elba is. So I feel like we should state this, and that's probably also yeah, one of the reasons why yeah. he loses at Waterloo as well. Absolutely. In fact, I would go further than this, and I'll say, shouldn't Napoleon, right, this brilliant guy, by all accounts, shouldn't he anticipated that issue? Because in Elba, he was well aware that Bourbons have presided over a mass demobilization. 1814 mm-hmm. through the first two months of 1815 is, is demobilizing the French military. So when he, when he was making decision to return, right, what did he expect? That the Europe will just op- embrace, you know, kind of receive him with an open embrace? No, he should have anticipated that there would be a confrontation. And if so, would the French army be ready for it? Now, he thought, clearly thought or anticipated that it would be. But in reality is that when he came back, he found that the French army was less than 60,000 men. I mean, that's that's a pittance, right? Mm-hmm. And yes, he will push through a mobilization. And by June, uh, the French army will increase to about 200,000 men. But as you correctly pointed out, more, many of them, if not most, were inexperienced recruits who had uh, who were still undergoing training when the war actually began. When the, the, and the as, campaign and as the well, we began. should mention, and we, and we mentioned this in the last episode as well. But we should mention it again that the Allies they learned from their mistake from the previous battles, and they learned from what, what they did wrong, and they used it in Waterloo, as we will talk about in a second. I'm sure that how to defeat Napoleon this time around. Um, yes, um, but even then, um, here, looking at the sheer numbers, <laughs> right, sheer numbers are astonishing that Napoleon's army is outnumbered by the coalition armies by by one to six, almost one to six, right? If you count the number of troops he took and compare it to what the coalition could mobilize, almost a million men, mm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's astonishing. Uh, the... You know, the Russians alone committed almost 200,000 men. Um, Austrians, almost as many, um, not mm. to mention the British, the Prussians, right? So, um, once again, you cannot but wonder what Napoleon was thinking. And you're right mm. that this is, all, you know, second important element is that this is not the armies of Russian or British or Prussian or Austrian. These are not the armies that the French were confronting in 96, 97, 1805. This is an army armies who spent a decade fighting the French, learning from them, improving, and the the uh, kind of in terms of their readiness, preparation, they are if they are if it, I mean they have improved significantly. Um the leadership, I think the question is about the leadership, though. So let's say, will, will Schwarzenberg or Blucher mm. or even Barclay de Tolly, whom I admire greatly, but would either of these allied leaders be being able to defeat Napoleon in a decisive battle? I'm more leaning towards the answering no. And this is where Wellington, uh, is, Wellington is, is a unique in, its, in that he's the right person at the right time. 
his experiences from India to Spain to Portugal uh, all kind of craft uh, him as a, as a military commander who understands well the challenges uh, that he's facing. And, uh, you know, we know that the campaign started with Napoleon seizing the initiative, um, you know, outmaneuvering the Prussians and the British and inflicting a, a major defeat on the Prussians at Ligny on the 16th of June. And the famous uh, statement by Wellington that, uh, you know, uh, uh, that he was outsmarted, right, um, uh, points to the fact that operationally Napoleon can still hold hold his ground. But by the time we get to Waterloo, one, you know, one, Napoleon is fighting rather unimaginative battle, a battle uh, just like he did at Borodino, right? Straightforward battle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that many of my colleagues, many of my friends are, are keen on kind of blaming Ney or Jerome or other subordinates for mistakes. And there is some validity to all of this. I still hold Napoleon responsible for the outcome of Waterloo. Mm. So let's talk about the Battle of Waterloo itself, because that is one of the highlights of the Napoleonic War that everyone, and even Alba, of course, made an infamous of Waterloo. And there is a station in London that's called Waterloo Station. So let's talk about the infamous Battle of Waterloo. I was discussing with a few friends of mine on WhatsApp about the movie, and there, one of them pointed out that there was not really enough feel as just in the field, but there were battles inside houses as well. And that would have been really cool to see in the movie, but we didn't see, just saw the battlefield in the field. No. And let's talk about the real Battle of Waterloo and how it really happened, because as you pointed out on Twitter, there is no trenches, and that would be a thing of the Civil War, <laughs> but that is half a century later. <laughs> but let's talk about the real Battle of Waterloo. Uh, I, 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 uh, absolutely, and I do want to state that uh, the battle scene, the, the battle reconstructions in the new movie by Ridley Scott are completely devoid of any attempt, even not even any any, any other, any attempt to, to reconstruct them. Right? So Austerlitz is anything but Austerlitz. Mm. Borodino is completely wrong. And the only thing really correct about and we didn't Scotland. even get to see, if I may, sorry if I, for interrupting you, we didn't even get to see or mention the Battle of Trafalgar, which uh, no. is one of more one of the important yeah. battles yeah. as well. Yeah. So we didn't, we didn't yeah. even get to mention or, yeah. or a scene in the yeah. movie. I mean, uh, there's no mention of the entire war in Spain and Portugal. Uh, but uh, the only thing really correct about Scott's version of Waterloo is that Napoleon and Wellington were present. That's mm. That's... That's what I can say. Now, the battle itself, we know that Napoleon had about 72, 73,000 men, most of them infantry, right? About 50, 51,000 infantry with significant artillery presence, well over 250 cannon. Um, and he is facing these two arms, well, I would say two and a half armies, right? Uh, and what I mean by this is that we have a core British army, we have a core Prussian army, but we also have smaller kind of allies, the Dutch, the Hanoverians, the Brunswickians, the Nassau, right? So the the British army that is actually fighting at Waterloo, the 68,000 troops that Wellington has, is half only British, and the other half is Dutch and the German. Uh, and and they, are, they have to bear the brunt of this numerically slightly superior French army, 
between these two villages of uh, Belélians and and Waterloo, with British holding their position closer to the village uh, to Waterloo. And what Wellington is hoping is that he will kind of dig in and and fight a defensive battle just long enough for the Prussians, led by Field Marshal Blucher, to arrive. And with Blucher's 50,000 men, the coalition would have had a significant superiority, over 40,000 men strong superiority over the French. And that's how, I think, if you look at the flow of the Battle of Waterloo, it's clearly a, a, a battle that is a defensive battle for the British, designed to exhaust the French by these repeated assaults on the well-established uh, you know, positions uh, uh, and gain time in order for the Prussians to arrive. Wellington is a very capable commander. And again, in, in our obsession with Napoleon, we oftentimes are ignored by, the, or by Wellington's own brilliance brilliance in, that is shown repeatedly in his battles in Portugal and Spain. Uh, um, look at his battle at Salamanca or Vitoria. These are really well-conceived, remarkable battles. And we should not think of Wellington simply as a defensive general. Anyone who's been who's looked at the battles of Salamanca and Vitoria knows that Wellington can be a, a, a very ambitious, aggressive commander as well. But at Waterloo, Wellington deliberately decides to hunker in and and await the assaults. And he does this, of course, using the famous reverse slopes uh, on the other side of the hill that protects the British troops from the direct bombardment from the the French artillery. Uh, He is fortunate, of course, that um, the, the day before and through the morning of the battle, it rained which meant that the effectiveness of the French artillery would not have been as pronounced as it would have been on a drier day. He's also fortunate that he has smaller farms, right, villages, kind of small farms on which he can anchor his position. So, for example, the British uh, extreme right flank is at Hougamont. And that's one of the things that rolled my eyes when watching the Ridley Scott's movie, where the Prussians are actually arriving to support the British right flank. Of course, that's incorrect. They actually arrived on the left flank. Right flank was protected by Hugomon. And the Hugomon, if you ever travel to Hugomon, you'll see, and it survives mostly intact, that it is a well, it's a strong position to defend. And, um, uh, and so uh, Wellington wants to make sure that that position protects his, his right flank. So he, he deploys here the 400 light infantry of the King's German Legion and, of course, the 95th rifles that will earn such fame defending this position. So is, is there any chance that Napoleon should have won Waterloo? We talked about the numbers, but yeah. tactic also, of course, has something to do with this as well, but is and we talked about the experience of the. Do we know the numbers of losses in Waterloo and and is there any chance that he could have won the battle? Uh, yes, we we know losses and they are quite devastating. The uh, the French lost well over thirty thousand men uh, and and most of them are killed and wounded. So about eight thousand are ca- uh, captured, and then the. Uh, the British troops lose, or the, the, the British and their allies, to be to be precise, lose about fifteen thousand. Out of them, 
6,500 are the British losses, and then Bluehurst Army loses another 6,000. So losses are quite quite Definitely. known. Well, what is uh, the and, total and, number yeah. of losses if you put it together? So if we put them together, they're about 56,000, so 55,000, oh. 56,000 men. Um, which is a, an enormous number, yeah. but it's it still pales, for example, by comparison with Borodino, where we had over 80,000 losses in a single day. Uh, or, of course, Leipzig, uh, that has uh, twice as many, but of stretch over three days, right? But anyways, to going back to your original question, Napoleon could have won Waterloo if the Prussians didn't arrive. Mm. So by five, six o'clock, Wellington would have been forced to fall back um, and the battle would have ended with with minor French victory. Not decisive. British army would have still be able to keep its formation. It would have retreated towards Brussels. From Brussels, who knows which way it would have gone. It could have gone eastward towards the shoreline or maybe further north into the Netherlands. Whatever the outcome. The bigger question is, so what? Right? Mm. If Napoleon wins Battle of Belle Alliance on June 18, he still needs to deal with 300 plus thousand Russians and Prussians, uh, oh, sorry, Russians and Austrians who are coming from the east. He can't really afford pursuing the British into the sea because he needs to hurry up to the east and deal with a new threat. And so that's where I think in the large scheme of things, Waterloo, as important as it is as a historical event, is not really an important. Napoleon would have been defeated that's that summer at some other small village, maybe in Rhineland, maybe in eastern France. So let's talk about its exile to Saint Helena, because that shows a bit further distance this time. <laughs> Do you blame them? <laughs> a little Do bit, not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about this because again it's a little bit maybe not confusing but it's a little bit hard to pinpoint what exactly Napoleon where because he was not a prisoner of war and he was not a normal prisoner either. So there was a bit grey area how they could keep Napoleon a prisoner because like I said, it was neither of the two things. You're right. Um I think that's one of the issues um that that puts him in that gray zone, kind of gray area, right? So after Waterloo, we know Napoleon returns to Paris. He finds that neither Parisians, uh, the common people, nor the legislature really want to support him. So he abdicates on 22nd of June. So that's just four four days after the battle. Then he leaves three days later and goes to Malmaison. This beautiful chateau that I hope you I hope you've seen it, or and if not, go and see it. It's a brilliant place. So he settles there at Malmaison, spends several days, you know, a couple of days there, and then ultimately decides that he's not safe. He knows that the Prussians are itching to shoot him, mm-hmm. outright kill him. And so he packs his things and goes to Rochefort, this great port town on the uh Atlantic coastline. And there he stays. Uh, considering the options, one option could have been for him to escape from France or use with the help of the local fishermen and go all the way to America. Uh, another would have been to kind of find uh, a, a different ways to kind of maybe uh, Latin America or some other place. 
But ultimately, Napoleon decides that it's better for him to surrender to the uh, Captain Frederick Maitland, a British captain of the HMS Bellerophon that was blockading Rochefort just off the coast. And he does so on July 15, 1815. Now, Maitland is caught in this really weird situation. On one hand, he's so excited about the fact that he is the guy who will accept Napoleon's surrender that he accepts it. But, of course, the bigger question is, well, what's the status of Napoleon? Right. So when uh, Maitland takes Napoleon to Portsmouth in Britain, the British government immediately tells him not to allow Napoleon to step on the British soil. So he's not because he thinks land. he will retire to Britain. <laughs> and we should we should have one thing clear that he never met Wellington in real life. That never happened. That's right. They never had. They never met. If anything, Napoleon held a grudge against Wellington, and we know that in a testament, he later on left money to uh, to the man who tried to assassinate Wellington. But here, in in in, in when he's in Portsmouth, again, if you are Napoleon. Why would you assume that the British government will let you in? I, that, that's, again, one of those incongruous decisions that Napoleon makes. Um, instead, British government understands that they can't imprison him. Uh, no it's, it's, it's like, oh, I spent half my life fighting the British. They're definitely going to let me in on their soul, that's for sure. <laughs> right. I just want to retire. What are you going to yeah. do? <laughs> right. Manchester is not a known place. <laughs> Uh, and and so they they know they can't keep him as a prisoner inside Britain, uh, nor can they kind of simply imprison him or shoot. Right? There is no legal grounds to actually. You know, I I'll get all these kind of sometimes questions. Why can't why couldn't they shoot him? Well, because there are no legal grounds for it. And what the solution therefore is that Napoleon can be kept as a virtual prisoner, not actual prisoner, but virtual prisoner on in an exile. So on Saint Helena. Napoleon is free to walk around. He's free to do whatever the hell he wants on the island. He just simply can't leave, right? This is where he's not technically a prisoner, although he, right, in practical terms, he's restricted in his movements. Um, the choice of St. Helena is made by the British government because of the remoteness of that island. Right? It is 1,100 miles from Africa. It's, mm. I think, 4,000 miles from Europe. It is small. It is largely... Kind of, you know, uninhabited, right? Except for the small uh, settlement of Jamestown, uh, and it's easier to protect uh, and, and ensure that that this this man will not escape like he did from Elba. And uh, in, in in the fall of in October of 1815, Napoleon aboard the HMS Northumberland arrives on the island and begins the six-year-long exile. I think Napoleon makes the best of this situation. He, as soon as he arrives on Saint Helena, he realize, he he knows this is it. He's not gonna yeah. be able to escape. And he, what he does is he smartly, smartly so fights his last battle, and I would say he wins it. He wins his, his most important battle, and that is the battle for posterity. It's a battle for how history is remembering him. And what he does is this: uh, he recasts himself, reinvents himself from being an emperor uh, with a penchant for dictatorial decisions, for penchant for right uh, using police to beat down his opponents, from a man who who went to conquer Europe and, and exploit quite a bit of it, 
to becoming the romantic hero, the martyr for the cause of liberal reform, the cause of, uh, of, of trying to improve Europe, right? And he, write, he dictates the memorial on St. Helena, he dictates these memoirs, all of which become crucial elements in the, in the Napoleonic legend that still continues to shape our perceptions of him. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the people who accompany us, because there's not many people who still are loyal enough to follow him to St. Helena as well. And, the, and, and I, I do believe at some point he do have an affair with someone who accompanies him, that the father or son or an illegitimate child with that with that someone who accompanies him. So let's talk a little bit about the people who accompany him as well to St. Helena. Um, sure. Um, so Napoleon uh, is 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 told in no uncertain terms that he's the number of people he can take is limited, and he will be able to take about um, uh, two dozen uh, people, and that includes kind of his uh, both servants as well as as companions. And so he selects a number of men that uh, he believes will be you know, useful to him, and that includes his trusted officers like Gaspard Gourgaud or Charles Montolon or his uh, trusted men like Henri Bertrand or Louis Marchand, his valet, right? And later on, uh, when he's on on the island, he will be joined by other men. Um, for or some of them are, are chosen by by uh, British government. For example, Dario Nira can I, uh, uh, will be an Irishman who becomes Napoleon's personal physician. Later on, uh, Napoleon's uh, my, uh, family will send. Uh, doctors to help Napoleon. So one of them will be Francois Carlo Antomarti, who will earn his you know, fame by making uh, the death mask, right, uh, of, of Napoleon after his passing. So the, the, the people that surround him are going to come from a quite diverse backgrounds. Uh, the but none of his that... close family members choose to come with him to, to the exile. Um. Well, again, first of all, they were not. Some of them were not allowed. Yeah. Some of them, they were not present. Uh, we, we, you know, the, by this time, by eighteen fifteen, Bonaparte was scattered around. So, uh, it's not that uh, it's not that it was easy for them to go. And this, you know, but also on a personal level, would you decide to That's go right. follow him into exile on this? This would be, I mean, for all practical purposes, yeah. this is like going into exile on the moon. I mean, it's so far away, it's so inhospitable. Um, the fact that this man, not like very Gourgo, attractive, yeah, like Gurgo or Marshana or Bertrand, that they choose to go, that's a testament to their kind of their willingness to sacrifice some of the best years of their life. I mean, these are young people; they are not necessarily oh, right on the way out, uh, and so they they go to um, to Saint Helena Island. And there, of course, as we know, the relationship between Napoleon and the British uh, authorities steadily declined. Initially, the relationship is quite good. So when when he uh, meets the uh, the British officials on the island, like Balcombs, he actually uh, they click, they become, I would say, kind of good friends. And Betsy Balcom, of course, later on writes wonderful memoirs of her interactions with, with Napoleon. But it's, of course, all of this changes with the arrival of Hudson Lowe as the governor of the island. Mm. And Hudson Lowe is is one of those petty, uh, always suspicious men 
who were concerned about dealing with Napoleon. He is always worried that Napoleon will escape. And in this worry, he does things that were, if you ask me, unjustifiable, that were irrational. So um, Napoleon has grounds for his complaints for living conditions in Longwood. He uh, he has legitimate complaints about the way Hudson Lowe keeps an eye, kind of constant surveillance of him. Uh, and and uh, and Napoleon, I think, also took joy out of pissing off Hudson Lowe at the, at the any opportunity he had. And so neither mm-hmm. side really liked each other. Uh, and and so ultimately, it, it creates a situation where the the last couple of years of his exile are quite miserable for Napoleon. All right. So you know, the, and again, according to the Swedish biographer that I mentioned earlier, the only one to really from Napoleon's family to come out got free from this because he saved up so many money is much so much money it's his mother who kind of is the only one that comes out of it that's gathered because she kind of saved up and she knew that this could not may not last forever so she kind of saved up you know putting put it out so and again this is according to the swedish biographer but i, I um, might be wrong but i, th- it I, to I be think he, his mother was fortunate that Hope sheltered her, sheltered her, right? You know that that's something to to be said about Pope yeah. Pius, who's been abused by Napoleon, but ultimately he actually shelters Bonaparte. But I would say that uh, the most the the most well off of the Bonapartes after eighteen fifteen is actually Joseph Bonaparte. Mm. Joseph, as we as you you know, was he was married to into a banking family from from Marseille. All through the empire, Joseph did, uh, I think, made smart choices in terms of investments. Uh, and by the time the empire fell, Joseph is actually a very wealthy man. So he uh, he's able to leave France and go to the United States, where he lived quite 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 lavishly. Um, in fact, he you know. He, he famously sold jewels that he took from Spain in the United States, and he lived in New York City, in Philadelphia. He built a wonderful uh, estate in up in New Jersey. Unfortunately, later on, it will be burned at Boeing Bridge. And he actually uh, had a, this kind of vibrant salon culture while he was here uh, uh, for about for a good number of years. Uh, and then later on, in 1830s, or Joseph moves to London, right? And then ultimately he will die in, in Florence. So I think overall, Joseph Bonaparte did quite well, certainly money-wise. He, he was more, success, more successful than than uh, than his other, his other brothers. Now, I wanted to, to skip a few decades, and of course, Napoleon dies, as I said, of cancer eventually, but I want to Keep a few decades because um, another one of his, maybe not heirs, but one of his, I don't know what the word for it is, but one other Bonaparte does attend to the French throne, and that is Louis Napoleon III. And when he came to power in 1848 because of the re- revolutions, was there were worry that there would be a new Napoleonic war because of another Bonaparte on the throne, or was there... Mm-hmm. Yeah, we spoke a little bit about this before the recording, but what was the worry for a new Napoleonic war with another Bonaparte on the throne? 
Um, Louis Napoleon uh, was born in 1808, in April of 1808, and uh, he was born at a time when Napoleon was still fretting, kind of being concerned about the future of his di- of, his, of the dynasty. Uh, right, Napoleon doesn't have a son or a legitimate son at the time. He he did have a uh, illegitimate uh, ambassador uh, child with one of the ladies in waiting. And so what happens is that Napoleon increasingly looks to his brothers and kind of sees if he can adopt one of his nephew his nephews. And so his Napoleon's brother Louis was married to Josephine's uh, daughter Hortense de Beauharnais. And even though the marriage was very volatile and quite difficult, and Louis was really not a good person uh, to his wife, and especially not a good husband, but that marriage produced children, specifically uh, Napoleon Charles, who was born in, uh, uh, I think he, he died in 1807 at a young age, and then, of course, Louis Napoleon. So Louis Napoleon is born in 1808. And what happened is that Napoleon, the great Napoleon, kind of considers at certain point kind of uh, of 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 using him as as potential heir. Uh Napoleon Louis Napoleon is baptized in 1810. Napoleon himself serves as his god uh, godfather. But of course that same year Napoleon marries Marie Louise and he has a son. Right. And so therefore Napoleon the second and Napoleon the second, that's right. Uh and, and what happens then is that the existence of Napoleon's son effectively means that Louis Napoleon, after the empire falls, doesn't have a, really any claims to leadership. He's not the main line, right? He's just a cadet line. But he's lucky that in 1832, uh, Napoleon's son dies. And with this death, the main line is, kind of Napoleon's main line is over. And the leadership of this family shifts kind of to the surviving generation. It shifts to, for example, Joseph, then shifts to Jerome, and ultimately shifts to Louis Napoleon. So by the time Louis Napoleon comes to power in, in 1848, he is essentially the face of the of, of, of Napoleon family, of the Bonaparte, so to speak. And he plays a very important role in promoting Bonapartism by writing extensively, right, books mm. and the, probably the most in, interesting of his books is the one he published in 1839 and it's called Napoleonic Ideas and these are the this is the book that kind of repeats the vision of Napoleon as a great liberal hero the great reformer who wanted to bring all this peace and prosperity to people of Europe and that Napoleon the Bonapartes that you know the what Napoleon stood for is inherently good and so that is a crucial uh, th- th- that book and that vision that he offers is a, one of the crucial reasons why in 1848 when he runs for office as a president Napoleon wins right there's this nostalgia in in Europe oh sorry in France for the good old days for the stability for prosperity for glory and Napoleon comes promising all of it at a time of great crisis in Fran- in France so when he's elected as a president of the republic no one thinks that this is necessarily the return of the empire. No one thinks this is the return of Bonapartism because we know he's chosen as the president of the republic and he can only serve four years. It's really later on in 1851 when he seizes the power that it creates the problem, right? And the problem, of course, is the, mm. is the revival of the empire. 
But even then, in 1851-52, there is no kind of uh, vision, no anticipation that the rise of Bonaparte, new Bonaparte to power, will provoke an all-out war. No one in Europe wants it, and the last of them is certainly Napoleon himself. Thank you so much. I think we're done the round up there. I hope you liked our three-part series on Napoleon, and hopefully this gave you a bit more insight into the real man himself. And before you go, do you have any social media any, where people might buy your book if they want to read about the Napoleonic Wars sure. or it's anything you want to promote or links in the description that you want to add? To me to do. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind of you. Hesitate. Thank you. I uh, know I'm, I'm very active on Twitter. I'm very active on Facebook. So um, you can just um, find me by my Googling my last name. Um, you know, I hope uh, you will enjoy Napoleonic Wars, which is the first book that really all tries to recast this period, not just as a Eurocentric or European conflict, but as a conflict of global ramifications. Thank you, yes, Erwin. Indeed, as Appreciate you said, it. it was an honor to be on other podcasts, but the honor was really mine. And it, we, this has been with that H12. I hope you liked this episode. If you are are, are such kind please re- write a review on the podcast. If you're an Apple podcast, that would help us out a lot. If you're on Spotify, please give us five stars. You can find us, like we said, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, wherever you can find podcasts on YouTube. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.